Well, hey there, freaks. It's your boy Marty Bent here with his AM radio voice this morning here on a beautiful Tuesday morning before Thanksgiving here in the United States. And myself a good Monday night with family and friends watching a little boxing. And now I'm here to introduce this episode with Chris Arnade. Really excited for this one. Really excited for you freaks to hear this one. Chris is somebody, uh, for you freaks that don't know, he's a photojournalist and author, ex-Wall Street trader. He wrote a book called Dignity. Uh, about America's back row and uh, basically I found Chris on Twitter a few years ago in the run-up to the 2016 election he was some odd man going into neighborhoods that uh, many would deem uh, unfavorable and talking to people he was sitting down and talking with people in middle America taking pictures and sharing their story their stories on Twitter Um, so I've been following him for for quite a while now and and the stories that he's been sharing and i was very fortunate to uh get chris to agree to allow me to drive up to his house and sit down and chat i am really excited for this episode we don't talk a lot about bitcoin i try to goad chris into diving more into bitcoin but um yeah we really just talk about dignity and the underlying societal problems that persist in america today uh, at least from his point of view Uh, he's seen a lot of shit He's talked to a lot of people. I think you guys are really going to like this episode. I know I certainly uh, had a lot of fun sitting down and, and picking Chris's brain. Chris, if you're listening, let me know if you're ever coming down to Brooklyn to drink. We need to make that happen. This episode of Tales from the Crypt is brought to you by the Cash App. As you know, Cash App is the simplest way to send and save money. And now it's the simplest way to try to grow your money. Introducing Cash App Investing. Unlike investing tools that only let you buy entire shares of stocks, Cash App lets you instantly invest as little or as much as you want. We're stacking slivers of shares, freaks. This way, when your favorite company's stock is just a little too expensive, you can still own a piece with as little as $1. You can invest $1 in a $100 stock if you wanted to. Get that sliver of a share. And because Cash App is directly connected to your bank account, there are no four to five day waiting periods for inbound transfers, so you can start investing today. Brokerage services are provided by Cash App Investing, a subsidiary of Square and member SIPC. As always, when you sign up, use the code StackingSats. It's one word, StackingSats, S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. To now get, to now get, actually, this is not, you guys have known this for a while now. You're going to get $10, all right? If you use the code StackingSats, we sign up, and then we're going to get $10. Cash App's going to give $10 to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. Oh, oh. The owls, all right? Not that third bag owl. We're going to help the owls out, all right? Download the Cash App. Use the code stacking at stacking stats, uh, stacking sats, excuse me. Um, go to the Google Play Store or App Store today. This episode of Tales from the Crypt is also brought to you by our friends at Casa Freaks. How protected are your C phrases? Does your key setup have one single point of failure? Are you even asking your question, your questions? Are you even asking yourself these questions yet? Our friends at Casa have drummed up the smartest and most secure way to hold your Bitcoin. No KYC, no altcoins, no percentage fees on your Bitcoin. No one's standing between you and your keys. Use the promo code TFTC to get up to $250 off your Casa membership. Uh, and you can also just reach out to them directly at membership at team.casa uh, for a free demo. Ask them your hardest offset questions. Put them through the ringer. They're there. They're ready to take the punches. They're there to help you. And teach you about privacy they designed their business to not require kyc they don't store digital copies of your passport or driver's license or enable location tracking or invasive analytics through their apps 
They require, uh, all they require is a first name or pseudonym and an email address. That's it. All right. So they got the different tiers. Diamond and Platinum members are going to get 24-7 VIP service with a dedicated client advisor and custom onboarding and OPSEC plan. But all memberships come with a full set of hardware wallets for your multi-sig plus the Costa Node 2 and plus Faradags and early access to all future Costa products. So use the code TFTC. Get up to $250 off. Go to keys. Dot, uh, excuse me, keys.casa slash keymaster uh, to check out their multi-sig setup or email them directly at membership at team.casa. I hope you freaks enjoy this episode uh, with Chris Arnade, legend of the game. Uh, enjoy. Okay. Tales from the Crypt. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here in a very foreign studio. I took a ride up north uh, and sitting down with a very special guest conversation. I am very, very much looking forward to. I don't even know if we'll talk about Bitcoin. I don't even care about talking about Bitcoin in this episode. I'm sitting down with Chris Arnotti, a photographer, ex-Wall Street trader and an author of Dignity, um, bringing respect to America's back, back row. We're searching for respect for Mark's back row, correct? I actually don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you have it written down. Seeking respect. Here you go. In the back row, America. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah. So, Chris, I'm, I was just telling you, I've been a huge fan for for years. For you freaks out there that uh, don't under don't know of Chris or or, or what you've been doing, I'll, I'll explain how I found you. I found you on Twitter. I think in the midst of the 2016 election, when there was a, a lot of talk about deplorables and the people in middle America and, and their thoughts and why they were bad people because they voted for Trump. And you were on the road going to small towns across America, doing some incredible photojournalism, uh, actually going to talk to people uh, in these places that the coastal elites were talking about. And it really, uh, to me at least, uh, create a lot of empathy and, and you, you really drew out a lot of the you draw out a lot of the systemic problems that exist in our society well thank you for having me and thank you for that introduction i will just add i wasn't just going to small villages towns i was actually going to towns within the coastal you know 100 yards away from where the yeah. coastal elites live where they don't go yeah so places like the bronx or um uh, places like East New York and Brooklyn, where people drive through but they don't go. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I'm right in the thick of that. Yep. And uh, so, w- why did you do this? What drove you to go on this journey to 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 get this message out? Um, it was kind of twofold. One was, um, as you had mentioned in the introduction, I was a Wall Street trader for 20 years. Um, I joined Solomon Brothers, which some of your readers or listeners might know from uh, Liars Poker. Mm-hmm. Um, which then became Citibank. Um, did you work with Louis Ranieri? Um, we did not overlap. Okay. Um, but uh, I, I I joined in 93, and I think most of the people in the book had left by then. Um, I actually didn't read the book before I got there, so, you know, I kind of came in blind. But um, So I had 20 years in Wall Street as a bond trader, um, and prior to that I had been a Ph.D. in physics, particle physics. And so... Um, the way I thought about things all my life was very quantitative, very data-centric, looking at compu- literally sitting in front of computer screens, making judgments based simply on numbers. And through the course of those 20 years, I had kind of a slow 
realization that maybe that was a very close-minded way to look at the world. Um, and so I started you know, talking to people, realizing that to look behind the numbers and, and, and some of the, um, to look into the data, as it were, at a personal level. Um, and so I started going on these, I always walk, take long walks, but basically 20-mile walks all through New York City um, and talking to people and just letting kind of whatever happened, happen. Um, and it was also personally interesting. That's kind of, I learned a lot, but I also enjoyed myself a lot. I got to meet a lot of different people. Um, and so that was my way of relieving stress in some senses or my hobby. Um, and eventually it evolved into doing what I do now, which is effectively documenting um, and writing about the people I meet on those walks. And those walks became drives, and those drives became... Um, more extensive than just, you know, driving to Buffalo or so. It became going all across the country. Yeah, you've been all around Alabama, middle uh, Indiana, any small town you can think of. Uh, yeah, I think over the course of the last seven years, I kind of probably, I think the number is between three hundred and 400,000 miles I've racked up on my car. Um, <laughs> so um, a lot of driving. And um, and that, in, that meant with no real purpose, beyond just going to places that people told me. Basically, what unifies the places I've went to are they're generally places people tell you not to go. Um, so I would actually do this little trick on Twitter where I'd say, hey, I'm in Michigan. Where should I go? And then I would go where people told me not to go. <laughs> so if they said to go to blank, I would put an X through it and not go there, um, which was a way to kind of find, you know, places that had been overlooked in many ways. Yeah. And so it seems like there is a great amount of people who are currently being overlooked in this country in particular. And Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's frustrating because there are a lot of people who read my book who come from that background or people who work with people documenting it in my book, you know, people who do nonprofits perhaps or people who... Um, grew up in these communities and left who all look at me and go like, why don't he, why doesn't anybody else get it? Why don't they get that? These, there's, you know, this is kind of, if not, you know, not clo close to the majority of human experience in the United States. And yet we don't talk about it and we don't hear from them. We certainly don't hear from them on TV. We don't hear from them on Twitter. Uh, we don't hear from them in the New York times. We don't hear from them in the economist or the wall street journal. And if we hear from them, it's generally someone like me, telling their stories, but in a very, I, I find in many cases when people do that, they do it in a very condescending way. Mm -hmm. It's talking about what these people have done wrong mm -hmm. and how they need to fix themselves and how we can help them fix themselves as opposed to just simply letting them talk. Yeah. And a lot of that condescension comes from assumptions that the way we're doing things is correct, right? Growth that's, well, costs. that's right. That, that what, what happens is uh, you use the word coastal elites. I use the term front row. Um, basically the educated elite um, who often are in the coast but in certain neighborhoods in the coast only um, really feel like they they got it figured out and that if there's a problem especially in a community um, it's due to some fault in that community it's not due to the fault of the policies the elites have put into place but it's due to the failings of the people in these communities yeah, no, and that's a big theme of this podcast is that uh, sort of the KPIs that we strive for as a country and you know, as an economy, and that being GDP inflation, um, CPI in particular, really 
aren't good things to strive for strive for because i would uh, i would argue i'm not going to speak for others that uh, a lot of this policy has driven a wedge in the inequality we're experiencing in in the country yeah i think there was somebody who reviewed my book who i i, I, I wish i could remember the line they use i would steal it from them which is um kind of the economy we created is is not conducive to 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 building meaningful lives and and communities and healthy communities um, meaning that if you if you're going to build a meaningful life and you're going to build a, 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 a functional community within the structures we have you have to overcome odds to do that it's not you're not incentivized to do that you're incentivized to actually be atomized you're incentivized to basically be um you know, you know, to put it in kind of revolutionary terms, you're, you're incentivized to suck it up and 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 listen to the man. Yeah, yeah. Shut up. Don't think. Consume. Obey. Yep. Hop in. Uh, be part of the machine. And you know, people people respond. People responding is not the right word. People have to deal with the incentives that they're given, or give or the options they're given. You know, it's 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 there. People. People operate within the structures that that they find themselves in, and they often make the best decision within those structures. But when people look from the X tide, they look at it as bad decisions. When in fact they're just doing their best to deal with a system that's not working for them. I think that's a very good point, and this is a good to draw attention to what happened on Wall Street. And this is something I've when I talk about because uh, I was an economics major. I worked at a managed futures fund out of college and. To some of my friends, I am the economics finance nerd, and a lot of people blame bankers in particular, and yes, there is definitely plenty of blame to go around, but they were just working, like you said, within a system that incentivized them to uh, yeah, lever um, up. And I mean, you know, there's a piece I wrote a long time ago that I, um, you know, basically, you know, why it's smart to be reckless on Wall Street. I mean, you, the incentives very much were aligned, you know, to do to do bad to do unethical things, um, and so not surprisingly, people did unethical things. <laughs> well, not surprisingly, uh, it's funny because you you go back to the Great Depression and the government's response to that calamity was the Glass Steagall Act, and you fast forward to '99, we have Travelers Group and City Citibank join and it basically destroyed Glass Steagall with the Graham Leach Bliley Act and they basically tore down the barriers which uh basically stopped them from acting immoral, right? Yeah, and the um it was the Glass Eagle Act was effectively dead by then already. Mm-hmm. Effectively, I mean, you know, it was it was killing something that was already dead. Um and it had died basically it died a slow erosion starting in the eighties. Um by just people you know, bankers are the elites, and bankers are great at uh, at exploiting the gray area. You know, the way we the way we build a uh, rules in the system is we make very hard laws for the poor people that give you no wiggle room, and then we make very gray laws for the wealthy that gives people a lot of wiggle room. And one of the and that's how basically over time from through the 60s, 70s, and 80s. By the time I got to Solomon Brothers, which became Travelers. Um, in '93, the Glass Eagle was effectively dead. As a, I mean, they weren't they weren't enforcing it. No one was behaving like it existed. Um, to, in my mind, though, if you want to look at kind of where um, where the elites really uh, fucked up and set a bad precedent, 
it goes back to um, a little-known event, at least little-known nowadays, um, which was the tequila crisis, which was um, the Mexico bailout mm-hmm. in 95, or late 94, early 95. And the reason I referenced that was um, what had happened then was NAFTA had passed. Um, there was a lot of economic speculation in Mexico. Uh, Mexico collapsed, and um, the collapse of Mexico risked collapsing a lot of U.S. banks who had overextended themselves in Mexico, including the bank I worked at. And the way the the, the new administration, the Clinton, the new Bill Clinton administration, with its new under 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 Secretary of Treasury Lawrence Taylor, Lawrence Summers, Larry Summers, um, dealt with it. He was a point person on it. Was a bailout. They bailed out Mexico and they bailed out Wall Street. Um, I think it was, I don't remember the amount. I think it was $50 billion. Um, but it was a precedent that, it set a very bad precedent of, this is how we deal with financial crises. Mm-hmm. We bail out banks. We bail out markets. And so that process of, and it, and from, the, from the perspective of the policy people that worked, Lehman, which was overextended in Mexico, survived the Mexico bailout. It might not have had Larry Summers not stepped in in 94, 95. Um, and fast forward to 2007, and there you go. They're right back where they were. Yeah. Even worse. In uh, between then, there was a lot of other bailouts. Um, and many of them, again, directed by um, the U.S. Treasury Department. Yeah, and... So what are your thoughts on bailouts in general? Are they necessary? Um, are they okay in some instances and not others? You know, I mean, I always, my kind of view is I'm, I'm, an, I'm a, what happens in bailouts is we built, we've built a system that requires them, and it's how, how convenient. We, 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 we require to bail out bankers when they get into trouble. We don't think about the other option, which is to bail out the um, public. And so rather than direct $50 billion at, at, at salvaging, saving the market, the other option is to basically print money, for instance, and give it to individuals, which could have been done in 2007, bail out the homeowners, not the banks. Well, yeah, and that's what you see people clamoring for now after uh, six years of the greatest monetary base expansion the Fed's ever seen. Uh, it seems as though that bailout to Wall Street sort of just went to asset prices, whether it be stocks or real estate and other rich stores of value. And now uh, the the left is becoming more popular with Andrew Yang trying to give everybody a thousand bucks per month. Uh, Bernie and uh, Senator Warren leading leading the pack, it seems, uh, for the Democrats. And it seems like uh, people are clamoring for that that bailout of, of the, the back row, if you will. Right. I... I, I... In my mind, if you're going to bail out somebody, it's better to bail them out. I agree. And then it is to bail out the bankers. Yeah. Um, it's also probably more effective if your goal is the usual goal of policymakers, which is to increase the GDP, et cetera. Um, but what happens is we don't have the inst- we don't have the structure in place to do it. And so when it, when when crises come, policymakers will say, "Well, I don't got enough time to do this." I got to use the old playbook, and not surprisingly, the old playbook benefits the elite. Yeah. So we, we need a new we need a new playbook. 
Um, and, you know, between the, between the way compensation is provided on Wall Street, between, between, um, between that and the way how we bail out markets, it's all very much incentivized, um, speculative, crazy behavior. Um, and so it's not surprising crazy speculative behavior happens. No, no, I completely, so that's why Bitcoin, I think we need a whole new system and to sort of throw a wrench in what's happening now. And so I guess that's a question I have for you. The system that we're living under now has led to uh, birth rates and family formation falling to lows. Uh, we haven't seen in a while, suicide rates, opioid addiction at all time highs. Uh, it seems that even though everything's good on paper, inflation's within around 2%. GDP's uh, up and to the right for the last decade or whatever, um, or better part of a decade. Uh, but the the KPIs, again, don't reflect the underlying uh, vitality and, and health of the society, right? And um, it feels like we've lost a bit of what this life is all about, which is family and, and community and what you try to get at in your book. Right. I mean, the you know, the quants have won. I call it sometimes a revenge of the nerds, um, the old the old eighties movie, mm-hmm. um, which is they took over um, baseball, uh, they take over Wall Street, and they take over a lot of policy. And one of the things that I say this as a PhD in theoretical physics, and as somebody who was a quant on Wall Street for twenty years, I, I respect numbers, I respect quantitative ability, but the way I say it is science and the quantitative is very good at building bridges, but it's not necessarily good at building a meaningful life. And one of the problems is when you, when you, when you put everything in quantitative terms, you overlook those things that can't be measured or not easily measured. And so we've overemphasized that which we can measure easily, which is GDP, inflation, um, <coughs> income, um, efficiency, profits, and we've underemphasized those things that can't really be measured that easy, which is um, community, family, faith, place. Um, and not surprisingly, over the last X number of years, as that, as we've done that, um, to obtain increased GDP and to obtain increased efficiency, we've destroyed a lot of things that we've chosen not to look at, i.e. not to measure, like community, meaningfulness, um, happiness. Um, so it's a very, it's a very, um, a very narrow way of looking at the world, and it's a very dangerous way to look at the world. But one of the more frustrating things about it, it also feels right. And so, right. you know, the it people does. who the people who do this really think they're right, and I can't blame them. I mean, I used to be one of them, and contrary to a lot of other people, I don't blame them per se. They really think they're on the right side of history. They really think they're doing good. They'll pull out all their data and say, look all the good we've done. You know, people are wealthier. Um, poverty is down. Lifespans are, you know, not currently, but cur- they used to be able to say lifespans are up. Global poverty. And so they really feel like they can't understand why anybody's criticizing them. Well, I'm going to call out one paper in particular that I know you notice as well. 
that makes me think, all right, maybe these guys just have no sense of reality. And it was the Richmond Fed's paper, Cognitive Hubs and Spatial Redistribution. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> How could you I mean, honestly publish that? And, and, you know, in, in their defense, they said it was a think piece, but, you know, come on. Right. I mean, I call it, you know, I got yelled at on Twitter for using the term colonialism um, because colonialism is strictly speaking about denying people voting rights, but it's economic colonialism. This idea that, you know, we're going to have the hinterlands that kind of produce the stuff we, we need, but otherwise that's where the dumb people go. They just described gulags basically in the paper. <laughs> but no, yeah, so, I mean, people have listened. I've ranted about this paper uh, a few times in the last... I think I'm the one who called it the Hunger Games. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're creating the Hunger Games, but just the Orwellian uh, name of the paper, Cognitive Hubs and Spatial Redistribution. It's like, are they that dumb? Do they really think they're doing that good? Or are they just trying to sneakily? I think they really think they're doing good. And yeah. so one of the frustrations is is it's been hard for me to to engage them because when it, they, they think you're attacking them because they're moral. They're on the right side of history, and you're clearly not if you can't see that. Um, or the way the way the elites the way the 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 left left and generally they're center left more than center right but they're the same um, the way they dismiss something is just to look is condescending to, to snark on it like you don't understand like how dare you um, and one of the problems is the whole framework of their whole worldview is built to support their worldview, not surprisingly. So their way of talking about it is, well, where's your data? <laughs> right. Like you, you but the, no, your point, my whole point is, is the data isn't measuring what I'm doing. And that's why I'm going out and talking to people is because the data, your worldview is very narrow and that it misses the things that the data misses. And then the other thing they, and, and, and think about it, their whole world framework is built on, if you're right, you can argue better with data. And so their response is, well, debate me, which is very much, again, playing on, it's like, you know, it's like playing the Eagles in, in their home field, right? It's like, yeah. you know, you got a disadvantage, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, like that debating, de debate by definition is kind of the way they, they, uh, they judge what is right and wrong, whereas reality is a lot more nuanced than what can be decided in a physical debate with numbers. Yeah, right, because you sort of set the framing and... Yep, in, in I mean, that way, and you're you're doomed from the start. Yeah, and so, which is why my response to them was, "Well, come out, you know, come out with me, go to this town of deplorables or this town of, you know, the ghetto, e either one, e both dismissive terms, you know, one one dismissive for whites, the other dismissive towards blacks. Come with me and actually talk to these talk people. to people, and then try to explain to them the well actually." Well, actually, it's better that your factory moved, and you're now a not a member of a cognitive hub. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> like you know, and then the the greatest disdain, the greatest where they show, and within their framework, even within their framework and on their home field, where they show the complete, in my mind, the mis most misunderstanding, is when they talk about people being physically able to move whenever. You know, the just move. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Buffalo's dying, just move. Prestonburg, Kentucky's dying, just move. Um, you know, and what that misses in my mind is, well, so much. <laughs> you know, first of all, we shouldn't, is, 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 the pos is it positive to make us all economic migrants within our own country? Right. Um, but also it's, 
within their, you know, also place, the value of place, family, local connections are one of the few things that the poor are gifted at birth. Like it's, it's, a, it's something that means something to them that has value to them, not necessarily monetary, that you don't have to have a resume to have. Yeah, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's something that gives you a place in the world, literally, and yet we're trying to take that away. So, so it's very elitist. It's, it's saying the few things that we can gift to the poor through birth, like place and faith, things that don't require a resume to get in family, are somehow uh, easy to break and not valuable. But also within their framework, the just move thing is asking them to sell the one asset they have at at the lows. Yeah, yeah, at the lows, and especially where they're living. Yeah, right. and so uh, on every level, it's offensive. Uh, within their worldview, it's offensive. Within the every within a worldview that they don't see, it's offensive. Um, and it gets at a lot of how they think about the world, which is just widgets to be moved around in a spreadsheet. Yeah, and how do we break out of this mindset of we need to micromanage everybody? And I mean, you, cognitive hubs. <laughs> <laughs> what was the second part of the paper? Cognitive uh, spatial redistribution. Yes, yes, spatial. exactly. People are people are widgets to be moved around the around around like on a checkerboard. Yeah, you know, we'll just we'll just move these people um, from here to there, um, and that's and that's why I say it's very colonialist because it, it treats it's kind of top down. Yeah. Um, you know, yes, you know, yes, the people in the, in the, in the spatial <laughs> have, have voting rights, but, uh, it's a very much, a, it's an extraction of value. It's extraction of wealth and economic wealth from the hinterlands for the benefit of the, of the cognitive hubs. Yeah. No, and I'm actually happy you said, uh, it's all top down obviously is. I'm actually reading a book right now called strong towns. Um, I was on their podcast. Oh, you are? Yeah. Um, so I'm reading Chuck's book right now, but I think that Chuck makes a good point about literally how uh, our towns and our cities have been built uh, via the expansion, uh, the monetary expansion post-World War II. We sort of uh, built all these these highway systems and these suburbs and uh, cities and designed them poorly in haste uh, while we were expanding our economy. And it, it's coming uh, to light decades later that there's a lot of uh, infrastructure debt that comes when you build all this stuff and city debt and you get more dilapidated cities because people aren't literally designing the way these cities uh, uh, act in the physical space correctly. Yeah, I mean, it's very top-down and 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 you, I mean it's it's funny when you know, I, I'm not a I'm not a I'm not a I'm not, I guess, a, a town planner type You've walked around a lot, though. Yeah, but but I, I notice it, and so one of the things that strikes me is I, I, you can you can put me blindfolded and drop me into any town, and I'll just, by just looking around I can tell you if I'm a wealthy cognitive hub or not, <laughs> um, and it's by the town planning, like the cognitive hubs over plan, like there will be three bike lanes and you know triple pedestrian and all this and whereas in the back row it's fucking it's libertarian man it's like it's like do people it. running through back alleys <laughs> it's like you know it's like self self um self-organized hive mind right it's yeah like the, the perfect example of like you uh design versus user experience right you have like a pavement that's uh, very clean and well paved but there's like a patch of grass so you can see a clear trail yep uh 
But I, I just was in Jakarta, and one of my favorite things to do was they, they, everybody has a moped. Um, speaking of town planning, to be a little bit off um, off off topic, but um, and everybody drives mopeds, um, but there's no stoplights at a lot of places, and, and in an odd way, it works. <laughs> like, right. It, 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 like, you know, it just eventually. I mean, I'm sure. There, I'm sure. There, I'm sure it doesn't work by town planner standpoint because of fatality rates or something. But it's. But it's. It's kind of fascinating to watch how self organization works. Yeah, no, I've seen those videos on YouTube. It is fascinating. But we seem so dead set on not letting these systems emerge and being a top down driven society. Yeah, and I think you know a lot of that comes from. Again, it's the. It's the cognitive hubs really feeling like they're in the right. And, you know, again, they have a lot of data on their side. And so they would look at the Jakarta things and say, well, again, fatality rates, blah, blah, blah. And so we have this, this intense safety mindset that, you know, where that gets to the point where we're going to squeeze out, you know, we're going to, we're going to squeeze out efficiency, efficiency, and fishing and safety to the point where you, you take away the fatality of, of, you suck, suck away humanity. Um, but again, they really think they're right because, you know, they're building a safer, more efficient society. And, you know, uh, that's their, that's their religion. And you're not going to, you're not, you're not going to, and they make a good strong case, but that's maybe what they should do, you know? So they feel very strong that, and again, and I don't want to, I'm not attacking them because they really are well-intentioned. This is really how, you know, they want, they're doing right. And they really are in, in their mind doing right. Well, to the uh, probably silent majority of us outside of that system making these decisions who think something's terribly awry, um, it seem, I would argue, I think this strongly, I think we're a nation in need of uh, immense healing. It's very disconnected, obviously, with the polarity of our politics right now. And... It is how do you like shift the conversation to thinking about these social and non tangible nebulous ideas of faith, community, um, family, um, from the the analytical quantitative growth side? I have no idea, um, <laughs> and you know I think my pessimistic side is says uh, you don't, and you know heads will roll. Eventually, the peasants will revolt. You know, I said you know. Yeah, it's that Wizard of Ed cartoon. I don't know if you've seen where the king is sitting, looking out the window, and someone says, "The peasants are revolting." He says, "Of course, like I think oh, now I messed up the joke." He says, "Of course, like they are, like they are revolting." You know, like, oh, I messed up the joke. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, they're gonna they're gonna be toppled, um, mm-hmm. one way or the other, and as a member of their club, as a cognitive elite, um. I've been trying to warn them that if you don't want things to go very badly, and I don't want things to go very badly, and they don't want things to go very badly, we have to enact some changes here, or else the changes are going to come from the bottom up, and they're not going to be pretty. Like, you know, the revolution, you know, you can you can admire the goals of the, you know, you can admire the why someone's being revolutionary, but they never play out well. <laughs> Right, like it's not going to be pretty on the other side, and it's going to do everybody, including the revolutionaries, damage. So you you'd rather the changes come in a wholesome way, where the cognitive elite and their hubs 
recognize that something needs to be done and change their behavior and change the policy to integrate more the spatial hubs. Yeah, it was actually my last, not, this isn't the last question. It was the last question I had written down here, but like, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? And, and so that my optimistic side is I think the self, the, the pessimistic side is I think they don't. They continue to bury their heads in the sand. Um, and eventually it just gets to be basically where both sides end up dehumanizing the other side. The the front row, in my language, the front row um, scorns the back row. The back row hates the front row. They both treat each other as as subhumans. Um, the hate goes both ways, and eventually it, it just erupts into violence. That's the very pessimistic scenario. Um, and, you, and you get retribution and revenge becomes the goal of politics. You know, you, you look at Latin America and a lot of the world, that's the way it used to be. The, the goal of political power is is revenge on your enemies mm-hmm. um, to, to enrich your own group and then retribution on the other. And that's very bad. And that plays out. I don't care if it plays out on both sides, and that's not good. Uh, my more optimistic side is that um, the self, self-organization, basically the system has enough correctives in it that, the, the the elites, the cognitive elites, realize they got to change the system, um, um, or else they're going to lose um, control. What are your thoughts on uh, the background just building a new complete system by themselves? Um, you know, that's that's also uh, you know, silos is another way to go, right? Which is to um, kind of, in that some senses, that's the, that's a nonviolent revolution, right? Which is preferable <laughs> to violence always which is to um you know to 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 diminish the power of the elites through uh, alternative systems um the problem is with that is i guess i'm just cynical about how how people in power don't let go yeah they just don't yeah um and they have a lot of power and they don't let go for two reasons. One is they really, again, I, they think they're on the right side of history. And they really think they're right. And so you're not going to let go if you think you're right. Yeah. And the second is selfishness. Like, you know, you don't want to give up what you have. Yeah. So one of the things I learned from Wall Street is the wealthy don't let go. How much have you looked into Bitcoin? What? How much have you looked not into much. Bitcoin? Not much. I'm, like I'm, all, I'm, I'm all for alternative. Again, I'm all, you know, I can tell you, here's a rubber hits the road issue that frustrates me, and it tangentially has to do with Bitcoin. One of the things I, I deal with a lot of that, addicts and homeless people mm-hmm. and people in prison, um, and I often help them out. Often that means I have to use Western Union. Do you know the fees on Western Union? It's like 30%, right? It's it's absurd. It's 15, it's like the the VIG. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's a scam. It's a complete scam. And so if I send someone 100 bucks, I pay 120. Yeah. 20 in fees. Now, anybody who spends any time with the working class knows that Western Union and money transfers is a big thing. And so, especially for immigrants, Mm -hmm. and they get ripped off. Yeah. And... You know, so when I don't look at these things, I'm not a policy person, but when Facebook announced its thing. Libra. Yeah, you know, there was a, a lot of snark about it. 
Mm-hmm. My my response was, I hate Facebook. Okay, like I cut my I got, I got off of Facebook like two years ago. I think they have a lot of problems. Um, but my response was, that's great for Mexican Americans, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, that's great. Everybody has Facebook. Everybody has WhatsApp, especially in Latin America. WhatsApp's yep. more popular. Yep. Like, uh, um, so, you know, the current system as it is, the current um, banking system, the current um, monetary system com- completely screws over the poor. Yeah. Um, I always say poverty is a friction. And friction friction takes a, takes a toll no matter what direction you move. And that's what it, it's like, you know, you... you it's, it's it's like when you know they're trying to get rid of um, you know, again everything every every way they all of their monetary policy is one of the things I always say about the cognitive hubs the front row is they don't understand the lived realities of the people they advocate for so they don't know what it's like to be poor and they don't know the just the logistics of being poor such as Western Union costing you know or just other you know you know payday just, loans yeah just all that like you yeah. know. They don't know deserts. what it is like, um, all the frictions that, it, that accumulate. And if they did, they would have very different policies, I think. And that's why I kind of that's, go back to the optimistic question. I hope that through projects like mine and other people, they get out of their bubble, out of their cognitive hubs, spend six months in the hood or six months in you know, a Mexican-American community or six months in a uh, white working-class neighborhood, and they just by just by having to live to live with them, these people recognize that a lot of their policies are misguided. Yes, um, I completely agree. And I, Chris, I think you would love Bitcoin. You should jump more down that because. So really, the reason I'm into Bitcoin most importantly is because I think monetary policy is at the root of the problem. Like you, uh, via monetary policy and slow inflation over the course of decades, you force people. Uh, poor people, particularly if they want to save any purchasing power throughout time, they're forced to chase yield in the stock market, bonds, whatever it may be. If there was a money through which they could save their purchasing power uh, throughout time that has no chance of being debased, uh, that would be, again, it's not a panacea, but it is um, a, a, sh- a tool uh, that which the individual can use to preserve their purchasing power and therefore their economic dignity over time. The current system is very top-down. Yes. I, I will say that. And um, it's also um, it's also um, very close-minded in looking at other alternatives because um, they're, um, they're, they're scared to give up the ghost. I mean, the, the Fed, uh, I, you know, I have a lot of respect at many levels for the people at the Fed. But, you know, there's this um, outrage that the Fed's being politicized. <laughs> and my response is, I think it should be out- outraged that it hasn't been politicized before. I mean, the Fed has immense powers. They should not have it. Right? They have immense powers. I, it's, nobody should have it, right? I don't know about that. I do know that if you have that much immense power, it should be subject to scrutiny. Yeah. And, and, and you know... Back, the period of time when the Fed was largely um, treated as um, untouchable. Um, it's was, past us. Yeah, it's past us, and it wasn't particularly a good time. 
you know, Greenspan arguably did more yeah. and damage than, um, you know, than a lot of people Irrational exuberance is needed. We need it. And um, so I think the politicization of the Fed is, uh, I'm not saying to be badly political, but, you know, it, it deserves scrutiny. <laughs> like, I mean, they have a lot of power <laughs> for people who are largely unelected. Yeah. And are trying to micromanage a multi, multi-trillion dollar global economy. Yes. So, you know, if you have that much power um, and that much say in policy, you probably should be... Um, should probably... Expect scrutiny. Expect scrutiny. Maybe you should be allowed to be audited every once in a while. Uh. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the thing about the modern day... Um, uh, fiscal system and monetary system is it very much is it needs the it needs an aura of it needs a sense of um, untouchable to it to work when you start looking behind the in, in it it's just very it's very uh, mundane and it's a it's, it's basically like a Rube Goldberg machine it's one of those things that's you know it's built on a lot of it's shaky all, foundations it's all confidence game yes it is well every, you know, all markets are entirely a confidence game that's true and so they can't, but they want to pretend like it, theirs is not, mm-hmm. right? Because it's important to to, to 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 them to work that way to be um, the sense of like you know we're above it all, and like you know once the emperor, you know, once the curtains removed, you know it's a wizard, it's a wizard of Oz thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like so, um, they need to maintain this sense of uh, seriousness. Yeah, no, that's why. That's again, that's another reason why Bitcoin too because knowing how these monetary games work right so the world is continuously uh, engaged in a currency war whether people want to uh, want to admit it or not in the uh, unspoken agreement of this currency war is that you never talk about it and trump's been talking about it ad nauseum for the last well i promise to look at it more how's that yeah oh bitcoin yeah oh i'm glad i'm just uh, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm like we're focused on monetary policy here but um yeah, look more into Bitcoin, Chris. I think you would uh, really like it, and the ethos behind it. Like is... Like I said, the the Facebook thing would have helped poor people. Yes, it definitely would. And that's uh, um, there's a lot of good companies around Bitcoin that are using Bitcoin to create. Uh, so one of the problems with Bitcoin for people in Latin America, in particular, is the volatility of the price. Right. So they need a vehicle through which what Libra would have provided uh, a stable coin that can hold their value, but they can transact digitally. Um, there are companies out there uh, that are working to allow these people to use their Bitcoin, which is very volatile, to get access to loans of stable coins. Right. And so it's happening slowly but surely. Um, but again, this and so this is Bitcoin in particular is a new monetary good uh, that just showed up in the world 11 years ago. We're trying to discover what it is and how it works. One of the things that's interesting is um, is when you grew up on Wall Street like I did, or grew up in the front row or a cognitive hub. You build these biases to new things that you don't even know you have. What do you mean by that? Um, you just there's just certain things that elites roll their eyes at mm-hmm. the minute they're announced or come out. Bitcoin was one of those. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of other ones like you. They're kind of things that you just are supposed not to question. Um, and one of the things that this project, you know, the seven years has taught me is to question everything um, because I had these biases. I realized I always thought I was open minded. But I was the person to immediately roll my eyes at something that wasn't kind of front row approved. You seem pretty open minded to me. Not now, but yeah. I'm saying, but you, I'm saying is even even though you think you're open minded, if you if you live in this, if you immerse yourself in this culture, 
that is kind of the policymakers, the front row, the cognitive elite, whatever whatever term you want to use, the coastal elites. You come with biases that you don't realize you have, and one of, one of the biggest biases is basically what I'd call um, credentialism, which is you just roll your eyes at anything new that doesn't come from quote. Oh, I saw you roll your eyes when I said I went to DePaul, not the University of Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I did. did I'm I? kidding. I'm kidding. It was a, it was a joke. Um, no, but that is funny. I, I, but but the thing is, like, so you just you know you just you just question free trade. You don't you know free trade is good. It's not questioned. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, DePaul, Bitcoin's bad because it's just this weird thing that poor people do. I mean, it's kind of one of those things like to, to, to entirely to give you. I mean, entirely. Um, off topic a little bit of an odd example is when Trump went to the UFC fight mm-hmm. um, in um, Madison Square Gardens was booed and all these very thoughtful, serious blue checkmark journalists were like, he got booed by his base. It's like, dude, man, UFC is not his base. <laughs> like, like, I mean, it's not only that, uh, in, Madison in, Square in Madison Square, no, UFC Madison Square Gardens is, is bros from, Bros from Bronx who are going to go to Don Coquie and Astoria after party, like mm-hmm. you know, and Sanders fans, like you know, it's like you don't know. But and then and then there came a second round of just dismissing the UFC as this like human cockfighting, right? Like this off. And I'm like, you don't like just because it's poor people, just because it's working class, they hate it. Yeah, you know, and so you know, yeah. I didn't particularly. But UFC is another eye roll example. Like when I was working on Wall Street. Like initially when it came out, that was my reaction. Like I was supposed to dislike it, but over the course of like eight years hanging out in bars and all ways on, I grew to like it, and because the participants enjoy it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that was actually very. I thought UFC was too barbaric, MMA in particular, too barbaric and brutal. Like I actually don't like seeing people because I've had many concussions. I, I, I don't, I don't particularly like seeing it either, but you know, yeah. but people like it. <laughs> no, like you said, the athletes, they it is what they train for their whole lives yeah. and they get a lot of enjoyment out of it and, and purpose more importantly. Yeah. And so, you know, but it, it's, it's again, how the point I'm using is that anything that at all is affiliated with the back row, the working class that is non elitist is just scorned. But it's not always been this way. Like I was telling you, I was listening to your econ talk episodes and you were describing how in Florida, the, the owner of the orange juice factory used to live in the town. You would know. That's right. You wouldn't know whether or not he was well off or not. That's right. He's part of the community. How come that doesn't happen anyway? You know, I, that's that's a question I've not been able to answer. And that's one of those things you you're not allowed to talk about in modern day. It's it's just it's just cultural values. It was considered louche where I grew up. It was considered bad form to flaunt your wealth. You know. Um, so what you're talking about for those people who don't know is um, I grew up in a small town in the South. I had two orange juice factories and one of those orange juice factories was owned by a family who owned a lot of the groves around. Um, And um, we knew they were wealthy because, you know, they owned the orange juice factory, but we didn't really know they were wealthy. I mean, like they went to kids, went to public school with me, you know, shitty public school. Um, they work the fields like, you know, the orange groves like everybody else did. They might have um, worked at a higher level, like they might have managed um, uh, a shift or something, but not, you know, <laughs> they still got dirty. Yeah, they were servant leaders. Yeah. Um, and then I, I just, I remember finding out when I got to college or so, it was the first time I think they were in the Forbes 500. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, wait. <laughs> 
like whoa like the kid who you know again their measure that they were wealthy in the sense that when the kid got 18 their parents bought him a car that was cool it wasn't a used car it might even be a new car like no one else around us did that mm-hmm. but still it wasn't go have a private island in the bahamas um go to private boarding school which is the kind of wealth they had mm-hmm. but you know now um people of similar wealth in the not similar wealth but even less wealth in the town i grew up with flaunt their wealth so it's part of the culture now, yeah, right? It's like they now actually do go to, you know, private island resorts in the Bahamas. Like, you know, the, the, so I don't know how that changes. Like, yeah, th- there was a sense of obligation to the community um, that is not there anymore. But I mean, part of that's because you know, again, the factory no longer is there. It was bought by a conglomerate to give you like, which is now headquartered in Brazil, I think. So. Y- you know, the distance ownership is an issue. You know, when when the owner is not part of the community that his company operates in, it's the spreadsheet thing I talked about initially. Like, when the persons who pull, who are making the decisions is only caring about numbers on a spreadsheet and isn't in the community to see the effect of his policies or her policies or their policies. Yeah. Again, like the concept of a servant leader, servant leadership, it feels like it's dying art, right? Like somebody's down to get in the trenches and... Do you think we fit an extreme though? Like if to me at least the last being in Bitcoin in particular, knowing where Bitcoin is and just uh, observing pop culture. So that's like a question that's been popping in my head as you've been going on here is like, there's two parallel things going on. Like the, the system of the monetary fiscal system and the way it affects individuals and then the culture, like what do people value culturally and what do they strive for? It seems like, to me, at least as a millennial, 28-year-old, uh, my cohort in particular strives to get drunk, go to concerts, and it's really you know, less of us are starting families and getting married. I'm not trying to preach or anything, but it's like, what do we have, uh, what big goals do we have to look forward to and strive for? And it doesn't seem like there are many. And then seeing somebody like Kanye West come out with Jesus is King and get uh, such a backlash for something that, um, should should be benign. Just saying that you're okay with being faithful. Um, yeah, the it's interesting is the the educated elite, the front row cognitive hubs, have um, instituted this. Um, have basically emphasized individual liberty um, as a goal, and so they've. Um, the goal is to maximize, in some senses, to underemphasize the value of families and say that you should be able to do what you want, all those things. Um, enjoy your personal, but then they don't live that way. And then the people, the people who live that way, are the working class, and then they judge them for it. <laughs> yeah. What yeah. does that say, though? Like, do again? Do these people believe their own bullshit, or are they? Well, again, I, I, I'm not. I don't think groups. I don't ever assign negative quality, negative personal qualities to any group. You always have to look at the political structures they're operating in, and so the front row makes decisions I don't like. But I think it's again, it comes from the incentives. You know, they really do think they're doing the right thing. It's it's how they it's how their world it's it's a it's the 
it's the best they can do within the manifestation of the system they, they operate in. And that system is fundamentally flawed, that overly quantitative system, that overly narrow way of looking at meaning that, uh, you know, philosophically it's positivism. You know, I, you know the, the idea that, that what is right and just is entirely a function of data. Um, you know, and so that's the world they operate in. And um, so they're doing, within that world, they're doing the, what they think is the right thing. But you couple that, that notion and the data, the data collection and crunching, and you pair that with the pace of change that we're seeing as a society from technology, population growth, and all that. And it's how can the data accurate, ref, accurate, accurately reflect all the changes that are going on with how fast they're happening? Well, I think there's, I mean, independent of if the data can even measure what's important, the actual manipulate, the actual, what you do with data, there's so many, there's so many mistakes people make um, in terms of just actual data massaging and I mean you can you can make the data do almost anything you want and so there's this um, and and the speed certainly is an issue um, how much things are changing I think you know I think someone what was the term there's a dismissive term or I think that frames it liquid capitalism I think or just like liquid modernity where things are just changing so quickly that never heard that one um, that people just feel you know, and that's certainly how I look at, for instance, immigration issues, um, as an example where, um, at a moral level, I share um, the goals of a open immigration policy. Um, uh, I think it's the just thing to do in my worldview. Um, but to think that you can change communities that quickly and not have uh, an, a backlash. Um, is I think just is just um, is not being pragmatic at all, you know. Sure, over the course of maybe thirty years, forty years, but if all the changes take place in four years, people's heads spin. And so I think this the pace at which we do things has to be um, thought at. Yeah, it's um, surprising here hearing you say that. Someone who considers himself left leaning, um, it is. Uh, but again, these are intricate complex systems not complicated and the humans and our interactions are complex and we're building complicated yeah. systems i mean you know I, i'm again i'm all for immigration but at a moral level yeah. um, uh, um, i'm not going to support it and say well it does more and more for the economy no i mean it's it's a very basic human on my moral system it's the right thing to allow people into this country who especially those we've damaged through our foreign policy um but you also have to recognize that throwing, like I, I wrote in my book, putting ten, you know, two thousand Somali Americans into Lewiston, Maine, might is going to cause some problems on both ends. Right. Um, you know, so um, I, I advocate for it. I'm for it, but to 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 not to be in denial that the, that the pace at which these things happens doesn't impact how they're perceived. Or the integrity of the community is is in is being in denial. Yeah, I mean, uh, to not expect friction and, and uh, it's just it's stupid, right? Like, there's people have different views, and their views are shaped by how they grew grew up, where they grew up, and if that is uh, affronted pretty immediate, pretty starkly, 
um, people are naturally going to get riled. Um, I mean, I grew up in Philadelphia, Northeast Philadelphia, and uh, our neighborhood changed pretty fast. We, we had to move. Uh, we moved to South Carolina for a few years and then back to Philadelphia, but a suburb of Philadelphia. But got to a point where we felt like our neighborhood was changing so fast that we had to leave as well. It's um, the uh, you you mentioned Williamsburg. It's interesting is um, where you're from is uh, it when when it went Puerto Rico. When I look at New York, I look at um, basically wealthy people wanting what they want, and in the sixties and seventies, they didn't want to be in cities, so they left, and into the vacuum came poor immigrants and African Americans. Um, and then there, and then the next generation of the wealthy decide they want the cities back. That's reverse white flight, right? Yeah. So they're kicking out the immigrants and the blacks and recolonizing <laughs> the cities, and it's just very frustrating. They can't see on, in both cases that they, you know, the poor people are the ones being flung around. They got flung into cities, mm-hmm. into communities that nobody else wanted, and they got, now they're getting flung out when they want when the, when the wealthy want them back. Well, how do we co-mingle? How do we make it so it's just the, the town that you grew up in where everybody's... I don't know. Yeah. I mean, and that's biggest, and that's prob- partially why a lot of people were frustrated when we booked because I don't know. Um, Chris, I came to you for answers. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, I think your inclination is, uh, your inclination that we need big change is right. Um, you know, and then... There's a the, the problem with big changes. Big problems can come from it, and but you know it's it's kind of why I got laughed at prior to the election when I said I think Trump can win, and the basis for that was not only seeing the the enthusiasm for him what I saw, but it was also a lack of enthusiasm in the whole system by a lot of other people. It was people who basically were like I don't care anymore. Yeah, you're talking to one of them. Yeah, and so. The, the, if the status quo is not working for people, there are two responses. One is to exit stage left and just remove yourself from it, and that's what a lot of minorities have done. Um, and so was, I, I call it justified cynicism. What do you mean exit? Not vote. Yeah. Not not participate. Yeah. Um, is that a vote, though? I see my non-vote as a vote. Yeah, it is. No so when so people say there's only two choices. No, there's three choices. The third choice is the number one choice exhibited by people in my book which is not to vote um so there's there's that what i call justified cynicism the system is so rotten there's no point fighting against it it's big it's mean it's gonna win like fuck it i'm gonna just build my own life outside my own silo my own private idaho um what are the silos like uh, it's just just it's just living your life man it's like going to ufc it's watching ufc in the bar and working your job and finding your own little pleasures and building a family and just, you know, doing your best. Um, uh, it's just ignoring what, you know, what... What everybody else is talking about on yeah, CNN. and, you know, and, and put your head down and do your thing. And that's the way most people live, by the way. Not not necessarily by choice, just that's the reality. <laughs> like, you know, like I don't... Um, and then there's um, and then there's just the knock the gate and knock the checkerboard over. The... The accelerationist. I mean, which is, in some sense, is like, you know... There, there was a lot of that in Trump voters, which is, I don't care. The system isn't working for me. I'm going to knock the table over, right? Like 
might as well like so one of the first pieces I wrote that got traction was a kind of a piece with putting that in within um, Wall Street framework I don't, I don't know if your listeners or you know what an option is yes uh, but um, there's, there's there's something on Wall Street called a digital option it's a financial product which is very simple if the price of a stock is above a point you get paid one and if the price is below that you get paid zero after like three months um, it's called a, a digital option um, if you um, if the stock exceeds let's say a hundred within by December 1st you're paid a dollar mm-hmm. and the question is how much would you pay for that like you know um, but the mathemat the mathematics behind the how much you would pay for that is based is called volatility. What's what's the volatility of the stock? Um, and if your if the stock is at ninety currently and you need it above a hundred for you to win to get that one point, the one dollar payoff, you want volatility. It's your friend. It's you know it may end up at seventy, but it also may end up at a hundred and ten. If you're if the stock is currently sitting at 110, you don't want it to move. You don't want volatility. So I said, if you look at the election, the people who are in the money, meaning um, they own an option on society where if things doesn't change, they benefit. That's the wealthy people. They want things to stay the same. Mm-hmm. That's low volatility voters. Um, and if you're somebody who doesn't have a lot and you own an option and you need things to change for it to pay off to happen, you want volatility. So you're going to throw the chessboard. Yep. You want things to change. I mean, yeah, it may end up worse, but things are already bad for you. So like, (laughs) like, (laughs) why not? Fuck it. You know, I heard a lot of people say, what else do I have to lose? I've been screwed over so many other times. Yeah. And that's what Bitcoin, a lot of people describe Bitcoin as a call option or, uh, a put option on the a call option on the technology succeeding and a put option on the traditional system falling. That's right. And uh-huh. so, I mean, you, it, it's just, you go for high volatility payouts or when you're, when you're in the back row, you want things to change because the system isn't currently working for you. As simple as that, you want stuff to change. And so, um, that's, that's, a, that's behind a lot of, um, you know, so the piece I wrote was, you know, because a lot of people have said Trump at the time, they were saying anybody who votes for Trump is a complete idiot. Was the phrase somebody used uh, a New York Times columnist? That'd be nice today. <laughs> and um, I said they're not complete idiots. They're actually doing a rational choice in their own little worldview. Like they they want things to change. Yeah. They needed to. Yeah. They've gone from idiots to uh, to racist Nazis. Exactly. Uh, and the thing is, is um. So you asked me what what can be done. I mean, I mean, change is a friend. Change is a change is a friend of the people and who are who are out of power. Do we ever have quote unquote normal politics from here on out? Will we have a normal president after Trump? Do you think? Um, Has the board from been flipped and changed forever? I I think one of the things I um. I was I actually still keep in contact with my Wall Street friends because I used to do what's called macro trading, which is the big picture, serious stuff, looking around the world at what's going on in Chile or get into Bitcoin or Turkey or all that. And I said to them that the world we had, you know, from the 90s to about 2015, 
um, the stable, quote, world of, of sane leaders, of serious democracies. That was the anomaly in history. I think I think 100, 100 years from now, 50 years from now, people look back at that period. Just the 90s to 2015? I mean, kind of the period of kind of like... Bush, Clinton, Bush? Um, but that was the anomaly of, of, of these countries, a lot of countries moving to democracies, being, quote, stable, uh, globalism... The spreading of democracies yes. in the rest of the world yeah, is uh, an anomaly. Yeah, and what you're going to do is much more of the the world politics of my world when I was growing up at the 60s and 70s, 50s and 40s, which is strongmen, um, dictatorships, totalitarian regimes, chaos, coups. Um, that's not a good thing. I'm not like look. Uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying yay. <laughs> I'm saying uh oh, that that's more normal than people realize. Um, and so you ask me like I don't. I don't think. What I, what I, you know, I, I'm always very skeptical of projecting out, like, you know, come on. Um, but I think what you could see easily is what I call like a, 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 what U.S. politics is very much, a, again, what we have in Latin America, which is a, a, the pendulum swinging between two parties. And in both cases, the retri- retribution being the goal. Um, you go from one extreme to the other. And the goal becomes over time... <laughs> More and more, the party in power doesn't care so much about governing as it does about enriching itself and harming the others. Um, so, you know, Trump has a lot of that. He's him and his buddies are going to get rich, and he's going to he's going to make fun of um, uh, Sleepy Joe. Yeah, Sleepy Joe. And um, then when the Democrats get in power, you know, I suspect they'll take up his playbook. And the call for doing that will be higher because there'll be people who got, who will say, "Well, Trump did it, so why don't we do it? Trump broke all these norms. Why don't we break all these norms? Trump, Trump attacked his enemies. Why don't we attack our enemies?" Um, and the fact that Trump attacked the, his enemies makes those people who were attacked feel more justified in attacking Trump's people. Mm-hmm. So it's just it's a very ugly spiral where both you know it it it, it becomes more about just. Retro, Kick, kicking yeah. the other people's ass. Uh, where do they catch all of us up in their bullshit? Right, because it's only a few men that are that are really making these decisions at the end of the day. When you really think about it, um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 it's, <laughs> you know, I mean, if if I had to, if I ever get too regressive and kind of boil it down to like what was our, you know, what was our fundamental flaws, um. You know, you look at, so we had this period of the 90s and 2000s where we handed, you know, we ha- we handed policy to the very serious people. Um, and, um, and we handed p- policy to the very serious people, the the quants and the, and the eggheads, like myself. Egghead, I haven't heard that one. Yes. You haven't heard eggheads? No. That's the old school, that's the old term, derogatory term for intellectuals. Really? Yeah, you know, big heads that are, you know. Yeah, I might start using that one. Um, I've been called a meathead, never an egghead. Um, yeah, the back rows meatheads and the front rows eggheads. <laughs> um, so um, we handed it to, to us, and what do we do? We, um, we, we did TARP and we did the Iraq War. TARP, Iraq War, ad tech that's turning into a digital panopticon. I mean, uh, we, we, made, we made some big bumbling errors. Yeah. And, uh, and that hurt a lot of people. And so I think there's a, you know, 
do you feel personal responsibility or um i mean <laughs> i i think i don't look back you know with pride on my wall street years i i, I will i will say that um um i enjoyed it um it's a it's a it's a very very interesting game intellectually yeah intellectually stimulating i, I mean imagine. yeah i mean in i um, know macro and, so i've followed macro too when i worked at the managed futures fund and macro just following everything going on in the world is just addicting yeah i mean it's um it's probably the most inter- and the people i was around are some of the most enjoyable people to be around in the sense that they're very open-minded about debating like you on a trading floor you can't personally you can't you can't you can't harm somebody with your speech. <laughs> like, All these trades got to be battle tested, right? Yeah. So, um, but but I mean, the the system we we are working in, I have regrets over. Um, you know, how how can you not look back at the financial crisis and 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 the things that you know, the kind of centrist approach to the world and not see some major failures. Yeah, well, that's the big question all of us meatheads have looking at the eggheads. Uh, why are you building ad tech and, and algos for trading? What what do you think uh, Quant's energy could be directed towards that would be more productive for society? Um, pretty much anything else. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hard to, you know, uh, so my, my, my smart-ass answer to that as a former Quant is, like, was I really doing the world any good as a theoretical physicist? So my prior answer would have been to you if you met me in 2005, 2004, is um, I'm not doing any good, but I'm not doing any harm. It's benign. I mean, being a theoretical physics is not particularly doing a great deal of work positive for society either. I mean, it's, 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 it's an intellectual... Um, Masturbatory. Yeah. Thing. I mean, like, okay, it's fun. It's interesting, but really, come on. <laughs> Um, I mean, do do you know? Is Higgs is knowing that we have the Higgs boson going to change anybody's lives? Um, so, a lot of egghead pursuits, intellectual pursuits, are kind of pointless um, and selfish. So, I might as well do one that put my kids through college. You mm-hmm. know? Um, yeah. But I think the thing, you know, on a more personal note, this over the seven years of putting all these miles and talking to people, the people who, quote, were doing the best in my mind, who were living really wonderful lives and doing good. And happy, too, were people who, basically eggheads who were interacting with meatheads, to use your language, um, which is people who were teaching at community colleges in El Paso, um, mentoring kids who um, come from the back row, Um, people working in... uh, uh, ministers working in shelters and nonprofits in North Dakota, not getting a lot of attention, and they were just content. Yeah, and you know, that's 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 a problem with the front row too. It seems like nobody's ever content. With well, what they well, have. again, well, <laughs> the system we built makes nobody happy, and that was one of the things. That was other thing that that was insightful to me on Wall Street was I remember like saying to a lot of my friends at the time, um, like, "Why are you so miserable?" <laughs> <laughs> like, why are you so angry and miserable? <laughs> like, we're making so much money. How could you be? And but a lot of them were, um, because they judge their life relative to the people who have more than them. So it's a very, it's a very envy, eccentric, very envy heavy society system where we always look compare ourselves to someone slightly above us and feel bad. But no, the people who were living quote the most meaningful, happiest lives were people who were. Uh, 
again, working in small community colleges, working in small state schools, but really interacting with kids um, and young adults or older adults um, who are in night schools who really were just, you know, aspirational and trying to help them at a one-to-one level. And, you know, one of the things that's been fascinating about writing this book and being on Wall Street is a lot of former bankers types like my book, which I'm appreciative of, and they liked it a lot, but then their next question is, how can I help? Which is which is sweet. That's the right thing to ask, which is fine. But then the next question is, then eventually, how can I maximize my help to have the most efficiency and leverage? And I'm like, no, you're thinking about it wrong, man. <laughs> like, no. Jesus Christ. Like, you know, I get it. Like, you want to do, you want the be- biggest bang for your buck. But that's not the point. <laughs> The point is, you know, they they want to know that they they want to know that their dollars and their contribution is not being wasted; it's being maximized. Mm-hmm. Like, no, that's the whole wrong way of thinking about it. But you, what you know, just sell you. you, you know, my my advice to them is sell. My real advice to them, what they'll never take, and I understand it because it's a hard advice: is sell your apartment, move to Kansas City, and teach at university their finance to kids who are aspirational you know make a real difference does anybody have the balls to do that no yeah you know i mean you know it's kind of like what i say to to be to be a smart ass i say to whenever i see someone you know a harvard professor talking about inequality well you dude or or ma'am you probably have the one person who can make a personal impact on inequality through a personal action quit Harvard, go teach at Ivy Community College in Gary, Indiana. <laughs> you know, I can't see uh, Michigan doing that. Um, so, you know, but I think, I think there's a lot that can be done um, at a personal level, but collectively, no one, you know, it ne- you need a movement to do that. And I don't think that happening. Right. It's actually, this episode uh, is brought to you by the cash app i'm not reading an ad read right now but what the cash app does is they uh when you download the app you get ten dollars it's sort of an ad read and it's not really an ad read but then ten dollars goes to a a program that i worked an inner city program in chicago i worked for when i was in college called owls lacrosse and i agree you you really can't understand or empathize with with um back row uh, the back row of society unless you go into these neighborhoods and check it out and try to make a personal connection and when you do show up you realize it's a lot fucking harder than, yeah. than you would imagine and the other thing is it goes back to the I can also reframe it in their world it goes back to the leverage question you'll find out the leverage point meaning like you know some, someone says to me how should I donate I have like you know some money to donate which I do I said well what you should do first if you really want to be smart about it is go volunteer at a shelter or go volunteer at a nonprofit. And over the course of three months there, you'll figure out what needs to be done. They might need a new refrigerator. Uh, a kid you know, you know, who's having trouble communicating might need a new bike. You know, it's just, it's just, you'll see. And for Al's, it was just, these kids need something to do between two and five. Yep. Or eight and 11 on the weekends. And um, So it was teaching them what? Lacrosse. See, I've always thought someone. I was interesting on Twitter. I was making some snark the other day that someone should do that because lacrosse is the is the um, arbitrage way to get on Wall Street. Yeah, yeah. Like there's so many lacrosse. When I before I got on Wall Street, I didn't know lacrosse existed, and then I got on Wall Street. Like everybody's plays lacrosse. It's big. 
there's a big lax mafia on Wall Street. Yep. But no, Al. So Al stands for outreach with lacrosse and schools, and that is sort of the mentality. Uh, just uh, help develop uh, confidence. Number one. Yep. Confidence, uh, public speaking, leadership skills, and. Uh, working as a team importantly like learning how to work as a team but i think one of the things that is important when when, I, when in the people who are doing this that i like that i met is they're not doing this for attention like they're not doing this to try to like go to a spreadsheet and see how much good they're doing they're just doing because they want to do it yeah um, i think uh the dude who started al's sam angelata shout out sam is a the personification of that he's just some kid from ohio who had he had Good family upbringing, but he was a bit of a rebel in high school, and uh, he found a lot of uh, solace in lacrosse and wanted to give back to yep. to the inner city of Chicago via lacrosse. And it's crazy. It started in 2011. I was one of the first volunteers and volunteered as much as I could before I left Chicago in 2014. But now Sam's able to do it full time. They've got full funding. There's hundreds of kids doing it every every year now. Um, but it is an example of that, that's eight years of uh, working hard in these neighborhoods uh, to get to this point alone. And again, you can one, once you do that, you'll see how much um, you know you, what you can really do to change things. Um, again, but not because you want to maximize it, but because you really want to do that. Um, I'm looking through my pictures to find the Wizard of Id cartoon so I get it right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to figure out where it is. Well, why? Are, how do we get more? And again, I, I don't want to come off sanctimonious at all. This is a pure curiosity of how do we get more people to care about personal connections with others. Um, here it goes. You can read it since I blew it last time. All right, here we go. The peasants are revolting. You can say that again. <laughs> <laughs> so he's. So there's the joke is basically like, all right, shits up. By the time he realizes it, it's too late. Yeah. Um, so what was your question again? I'm sorry. Again, like I don't want to come off sanctimonious, but I'm generally curious. How do we, how do you think again? I know that you don't have all the answers, even though I came for them. Um, how do we get people to care more about personal connections with strangers or the other, the other more importantly? Um, I think, you know, again, the hope, the hope of the book was it affects people in some way by forcing people to, 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 to look at other people's lives and hear about their views and then see them in pictures. Um, I just, you know, I, I, at a personal level, I look back at the way I was raised versus the way I raised my kids. And I was raised in a community that um, was very working class. And even though my parents were eggheads, um, you know, we weren't shielded from the meatheads. I mean, we were immersed in them. We were like, you know, it was, it was, my entire life was, you know, um, shame, same shared experiences. Mm-hmm. I worked jobs starting at, you know, eight, um, working in orange groves, you know, working in factories, all that crap. Um, and then I look at my kids and, you know, they're, they're as liberal as me, but they don't interact with the working class. Um, because we don't really have places and spaces these days that, you know, now they do because we're, we're in a different community than we were when we were in Brooklyn, but in Brooklyn, no. Like, you know, there's just not places where people interact. We're so siloed between, um, 
cognitive hubs and non-cognitive hubs. Yeah, sometimes I feel like I live in an ant farm. I'm that crazy dude, the crazy dude in the apartment building that says hi to people in the elevator and as we're passing each other in the hall. Exactly. Um, people are siloed. And um, uh, and again, it's, it's not me. To, my libertarian instincts is not to tell people not to silo. If you want to, you know, because when I speak at universities, a lot of kids ask me the question you're asking me. A lot of very, very bright, you know, um, college kids who are come from the back row, perhaps. And it's not me for me to tell them not to do what I did, because what I did was very enjoyable at a personal level. Like I, they, they, they may have grew up in Lumberton, North Carolina. Why, who am I to tell them to stay to go back to their community? You know, when they want to see the world. Yeah. And so, uh, but it, but I think it's the thing is you, you can do that without forgetting where you came from and out losing. I mean, the people who need to, the people we need, not who need, we need to not forget where they came from are policymakers. You know, the people actually involved in the creation of policy. Well, it seems like all these policymakers are <laughs> being bred like in the, uh, in the, uh, in the Beltway in D.C. or in Cape Cod and Greenwich. And they have a very, you know, as I said in my book, um, when I was hanging out with that world, the, the front row, the eggheads, um, the quants, we are all very, we all have a geographical and racial diversity. But after, basically after college, our, after high school, our experiences were almost all the same. Yeah, you all go to the cognitive hubs. Yep. <laughs> like we we all went through the same set of colleges, all the same set of post postgraduate colleges, the, all the same apprenticeships, the same, um, the same, you know, and lived in the same communities. And so it was fascinating. It was like you get these people who think they're very global because they've they've lived they lived in London and they've lived in Tokyo and they lived in New York, but you know. <laughs> Believe me, I've been to the neighborhoods they've been to in all three of those places, and they're all the same. <laughs> yeah. The neighborhood they live in Mayfair, they live in Mayfair, or, or, or um, they live in Mayfair or Kensington, London, which is exactly the same as the Upper West Side. Mm-hmm. A little bit different, like the architecture is different. But. Yeah, it's a lot different. Mayfair and Kensington, London are a lot different than Mayfair and Kensington, Philadelphia, I can tell you that. Wow, it's, uh, off topic, man. So a lot of my time I spent in the U.S., the bulk of it in, in very, very, quote, um, dangerous neighborhoods, statistically. But um, the only time I've ever felt um, out of place or at least been much more aware of my surroundings than me was, was Kensington. Philly? Yeah. That's where I grew up is right next to Kensington. What's the street underneath the elevated there? Uh, Frankfurt Ave. Is it the one where um, there's, there's like these Cambodian... Um, Liquor stores that shell Jello shots for five dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I haven't been down in that area of Frankfurt Ave in a while. I haven't lived in Philly in like eleven years. Um, Kensington is actually having a gentrification moment right now too. There's a lot of breweries and. <sighs> but wow, yeah. um, I grew up in Frankfurt, which is a bit further northeast. You know, um, people ask did I ever feel the only time I've ever felt like you know hmm like looked around a little bit yeah people stab you there no problem. Um, well the, the difference is is um, the gun laws are different and so people carry yeah. <laughs> so it's like you know um, and um, yeah there, there, there was just a there was a there was a lot more anger there than I've seen in a lot of other places in the yeah. United States we weren't allowed to ride our bikes to Kensington growing up um, 
That is actually one of the the parts of Philly that has stayed pretty terrible throughout the last three decades as the rest of the city's had a glow up, if you will. Um, But it does seem like uh, the the expansion beyond Fishtown is starting. Um, Yeah. Do you think technology can solve this at all? Do you think the, the access to information that the internet provides can help solve these problems? It's interesting is I think, um, you know, again, it's one of those eye roll moments I had as a banker was we're all supposed to think that social media is bad, right? Because, but it's... Because it gives a voice to the little man. Basically, which, which they're eye rolling because, you know, we all hate Facebook like I do, right? But I hate it for me. But you know what? <laughs> it's 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 where the back row is on, and it gives them a voice, and it gives them a chance to have a say. So there's this real there's this real um, there's this real annoying um, uh, um, duality within the egghead community front row of you love democracy, but they hate populism. <laughs> right like wait (laughs) what (laughs) so you only like democracy that you approve of Mm -hmm. you know you can you you can hate democracy and then therefore hate populism but to love democracy and advocate for it and then not expect people to exercise it in ways that you don't like is missing the point yeah i mean And, and i see that with in terms of what you said about technology and social media, is like, oh, Twitter is bad. And I said that, and, I, and again, but at the same time, it, it gives, you know. Shines a floodlight on the hypocrisy. Well, yeah, and so, what, you know, and so I've come around to saying, like, you know, people like me or people like me, and I mean, you know, like, oh, people criticize me for when I write articles. Like, well, they should have the right to. Like, and I've learned a lot from the criticism I get on Twitter. You know, um, and and it, it's allowed much more feedback. It's very Socratic, if you will. Yeah. So I, you know, a lot of it's badly intended, but I, but at the core of it, I, I listen to it nonetheless because, you know, eventually, if enough people say, you know, yo, dude, <laughs> you're an idiot. <laughs> you're gonna think. You, you might want to think. Yeah. Um. So, there, in that sense, it's it's positive. Well, again, that's I'm. And f- very, very grateful to be here right now because I've been a fan of your Twitter account for for years now. As I said, and that's what I, I love about your approach to everything is you're getting your rolling your sleeves up, getting your hands dirty in these hard problems, and actually dissect them and try to get to the core of what's happening and trying to relay that to the rest of the world. And you're finding that people on the right and the left can agree on the stuff that you're talking about, at least in my opinion. Yeah, it's um. It has. I mean, it does get frustrating though when um, because the the most powerful people like don't want to hear, and I get that. Like you know, it's not. Again, it goes back to the uh, the volatility question, right? There's a lot of people who yeah. have a lot of interest in not having anything change, uh, because it, you know, it's it's very it's it's very bad for them. What percentage of the overall population is that, though? Five. Yeah, if, if that. <laughs> I would even say less. But they got a lot of power, man. Yeah. You know, it's one of the things when I watch, you know, I to, to reveal my politics, I'm probably a Sanders guy mm-hmm. uh, or, or Warren. I don't really care that much between the two of them. I mean, I'm splitting hairs. Everybody on Twitter is fighting about it, but I don't think, I think they're basically whatever. 
mm-hmm. one or the other. I mean, but um, it's one of the it, my old banking. Ha- well, I'll put my old banking hat on when I when I when I do see some of Sanders and Warren supporters saying, "You don't know how much the wealthy are going to fight." I, I spent twenty years with them, um, working with them. Um, they don't go down without a fight. They might not be able to fight Bitcoin. I would look into it. <laughs> I will look at Bitcoin. <laughs> No. But I mean, the vested interests don't give up. I know. I and know. one of the things that one of the things I've learned, you know, if I had to come up with a simple lesson for my seven years, is um, the poor always get fucked over. Uh, are we doomed for that? Do we um, do we need faith in our lives to get over this? The, a Jesus-like character to have us care for the poor? Uh, I think there's a um, a lot of value to faith, and a lot of the pushback to my book came, I think, from the left. Because I don't write dismissively about faith. You've been tweeting a lot more about. I've seen a lot of Bibles on yeah. McDonald's tables. Yeah. I mean, last I mean, week. it's it's um, again uh, as a scientist, you can't go spend seven years in the communities I spend in and not recognize the power of faith. Uh, it's just like you're in denial if you don't. Um, but um, so I, I do think I, I've never. I think somebody had to tell me who Kanye was about six months ago. Um, I'm that kind of clueless about um, some parts of culture, mm-hmm. um, but I, I do, I do have to smirk um, at the backlash he's getting because, I mean, the dude is going through something and he's doing it genuinely. And now, apparently, if you actually are religious, it's counterculture. You're yes, I mean. You're now he's all of a sudden profane, right? He's all of a sudden persona non grata, like, and know. it's crazy. And it personally, I agree with Kanye. Like, I just feel compelled to explore faith more earnestly because people are have turned away so vigorously. Yeah, and I think I think there is um, the the outrage he's gotten is a sign of how vigorously people have turned away from it. Um, and uh, it's unfortunate because. Uh, you know, as a self-described former atheist, um, uh, you know, again, <laughs> it would be basically lying of me to say that there's not <laughs> to, to deny what I saw. Yeah. And so, why are these people so faithful? Is faith their last uh, safeguard? Um, you know, there's the. There, I was kind of where I was like three years ago was at a very, and it's almost a very dismissive view of faith, which is that it's pragmatic because it works for these people. These people need it. I don't need it, but they need it. Um, and my 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 view has more evolved to a role of, and one of the things I write about in the book is maybe it's my experiences of privilege that have denied me access to seeing the power of faith. That maybe I'm the one who has been denied the evidence for faith. Interesting. Uh, as opposed to the you know the much more dismissive view, it's the opiate of the masses and they need it. Um, that view is true in my sense as meaning, but I think the more evolved sense, the less condescending way to think about it is that you haven't potentially opened your mind to it. Yeah, that's right. And that and that living in privilege, so to get kind of um, philosophical here is I see ultimately the secular world as being 
about the hubris of man and thinking you have it all under control and thinking you don't, you, you, to put it in scientific terms, that there is no error bar that we can't understand. Mm-hmm. And I think I see um, faith in its various manifestations as being about accepting a humility that I'm not particularly special, um, that we aren't particularly special, and there are things larger than us that we can't explain and we just need to accept. You know, the error bar is not understandable. Yeah. And I think if you are living in that secular world with wealth, it's easy to delude yourself into thinking you're, um, you're powerful enough um, and to, to figure it all out. And so I guess I would reframe it as growing up in the back row doesn't afford you um, the ability to gain the hubris. Mm. Um, you ha- you have to accept the evidence for 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 human humility and um, fragility is there yeah. every day. Yeah, now the hubris that man might be at an all time high right now. It is um, that that was beautifully put. I completely agree with that. And I think um, you know the cognitive hubs have a lot of hubris. Enough hubris apparently to write that paper. <laughs> Right, <laughs> we're gonna spatially redistribute. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of like, and there's a small chance I may piss off some people. It's kind of like um, the 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 cognitive hubs and the policymakers are always thinking it's just one policy tweak away from fixing the system. We're one we're one kludge away. And you know it's right around the corner. QE four. It's gonna it's gonna make it better. Don't worry. Exactly. That all that needs to be done is, um, is you know a refinement to the system when maybe the whole system is rotten. Exactly. Yeah. And unfixable through through micromanagement. Yeah. Whew, this has been incredible. Almost two hours, an hour and a half. Chris, um, thank you for all that you do. Um, and thank you for um, having me onto your uh, show. Well, thank you for having me into your house. It's a beautiful property you have up here. It was a beautiful drive up here. You're um, more lucky a bird didn't fly into the window. <laughs> Does that usually happen? Is that why you have to have this cat here? I have pasted up a black cat on my window to keep the birds from flying into the window. Yeah, it does, I see a couple smudges. Yes, a couple exactly. places where the birds may have come. Um, keep fighting the good fight, man. I don't well, think you, you realize it, but I think we're uh, we're fighting to change the system from different angles in the same way. And again, I would look more into Bitcoin. I think you'll like Bitcoin. <laughs> I promise. It I is a little it. scary. There are hardcore uh, libertarian but views. Pe- people at Bloomberg aren't going to like me anymore, though. Uh, Joe Weisenthal is pretty open to it. So. <laughs> Joe, Joe's been on this podcast. I like Joe. He's open to it. Um, I like Joe too. He's a uh, he's a good egg. I just see them. I just see him trolling Bitcoin people all the time. Uh, he's a master at it. He's yeah. very good at it. Well, that was a, yeah. He's become a troll. I give him credit for it. You know, I say that positively, by the way. I, I do. He's uh, an ethical troll yes. in a good way. And he's so good at it because Bitcoiners, word to the wise, so all you freaks listening out there get triggered so easily. Stop getting triggered so easily. Realize that he's trying to trigger you. Um, but he also does bring up good points and helps Bitcoiners steal man our arguments. Um, I think deep down, Joe likes Bitcoin as well. Um, Chris, where can we learn more about you? Is there anything upcoming that we should be aware? Um, uh, rush to your library and get my book um, or or buy it. 
preferably <laughs> for my publisher's sake. <laughs> um, it's called Dignity, um, Seeking Respect in the Back Row. Um, <clears throat> or um, it's one of the few books I would actually suggest. It's probably not easy to read on an e-reader because it's um, a lot of pictures. A lot of pictures. Um, and their pictures are as important as the words in my mind. Um, or follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm, I can be a bit of a troll myself. Um, um, just my name, Chris underscore Arnadi, A-R-N-A-D-E. Um, and that's about it. You have a final thought for the freaks out there? Final note, parting note, if you will? I think what I would simply say is, I try to always say is, um, before you judge anybody, walk a mile in their shoes. Or before, if, if you feel like people are judging you, it's probably because they don't know the... Um, they don't know the situation you're in. And rather than yell at them, although that's fun, um, try to explain your situation. Yeah, I think that's beautiful advice. Um, um, and that's where we're going to end it, Chris. Again, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Peace, Cheers. And, peace and love, freaks. <laughs>